0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Bonnier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to build a healthy consulting practice that is both profitable and sustainable. My guest today was on the show before. It's been five years that it has been on. And it's one of those episodes that I keep coming back to over and over again. I've used it to write my book. I've used it to develop my methodology. And I know a lot of people found it very, very insightful. Uh, so my guest today is the author of five books, including The Business of Expertise, uh, which I have behind me. You Somewhere can see, back there. You can see the red thing. You
1: put it there just for today, right?
0: Correct. And now he just published The Secret Tradecraft of elite advisors. He's worked with 900 firms and counting. He's a seasoned pro, probably one of the best expert on experts in the world. So, David Baker, very happy to have you back.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. In fact, I feel like this is such a special, momentous occasion. I'm using my cool glasses. Normally, I use these other normal glasses, but you deserve the cool ones. So, so here we go.
0: For those listening to the audio version of this, uh, the
1: cool glasses are like green. Is that? Yeah, they're made out of wood and metal together, but you can't wear them a lot because if you sweat, then it starts to decay. So I only wear them for very special interviews, and this is one of them.
0: But careful, though, because <laughs> I'm going to make you sweat. <laughs> yeah. What I didn't want to tell you of recording, like um, you were actually the one that made me realize that my podcast has become something I wouldn't say popular, but at least was gathering momentum in a way that I wasn't really expecting when I started, right? Because it started six years ago. The reason why I said that is because you were the first person to actually send me a physical book mm. and sign it, right? Mm. And at that moment I was like, fuck. You know, that it's interesting. Like I've never I never really re- like received a gift like that for something I was doing. And obviously you wanted me to invite you on the podcast. That was the end goal, but you know, it really touched me because uh, I felt, yeah, you know, it's going somewhere. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. But you had you had interviewed Seth Godin before me. And like anybody that's had Seth Godin on their podcast is going somewhere. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> this guy is something. Like-
0: yeah. And you see, but this is the difference between what others perceive of you and the way, you know, your voice, you know, and what you say yourself. And at the time, the, the two things were quite different. You know, yes, I had interviewed Seth Godin, but... You know, I didn't feel like necessarily that I was something that I was not or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I, I know And the second episode is also another one that I come back to pretty often. Going back to the topic of the episode, what are the signs of a unhealthy consulting practice?
1: Ah, oh, God. One where you're not making money. One where you don't get many referrals. One where you're not excited Monday mornings. One where you're making shit up because you got to have this call and you don't really know what to say. And so you're scrambling and filling. I know another sign of a really lousy consulting practice is long reports because those take, you don't need long reports unless you're filling something. You, you need to be concise and direct and to the point. You know, a 30 minute call is enough rather than a two hour call where you're going through all kinds of stuff. So I haven't thought too much about that, but off the top of my head, that's what I would say.
0: <laughs> that's it. You mentioned like uh, yeah, not, not, a, not a lot of referrals, making shit up, not having the excitement. Uh, but I want to touch on the, on the last one, because I think this goes back to a big fear from experts, entrepreneurs, even marketers. It's this kind of fear of not being perceived as, quote unquote, professional. which I fucking hate, or this this, this fear of not being seen as, yeah, an expert. And so what humans tend to do then is to overcompensate by writing a lot, talking a lot, you know, producing a lot. But what you're saying is the opposite. As an expert running a healthy consulting practice, you need to seek the opposite, basically, to just say as little as you can.
1: Yeah, and the rest of that time is filled with unexpected but really insightful questions that get people thinking about things they haven't talked about or exploring areas that really reveal the truth and then after you gather that information and they're not rote questions they're not the same ones each time you gather that information and all of a sudden you synthesize that and you say something that's concise and clear and it's compelling as well right the best consultants don't talk a lot they listen a lot right and they listen after asking really fantastic questions
0: can you give me an example of a fantastic question maybe that you ask clients?
1: Well, I'll get, I'll use a podcasting as an example. So I was on an interview yesterday and, well, actually, this was on LinkedIn yesterday. Somebody said, what's a typical question you get that you really hate? And I said, ah, why did you write this book? That's That's one. That's right in that category, right? And they said, well, what would you ask that would make it more interesting? And I said, okay ask something like this. When you were thinking about what the topic was that you were going to write, you're choosing between the options, which were the books you didn't write and why didn't you write those, right? So it's just a way to sort of flip it around a little bit. And here's another example. So when I'm working, I'm trying to, I'm working with a firm, I'm working with the principals, but I want to get a sense of how aligned and engaged the culture is. So I've come up with one question and I asked them to score this on a seven point Likert scale, one to seven. So like 5.6 5.6 or whatever it is. If you left this company on good terms and a friend of yours was offered a job to go work at the company you left on good terms, would you recommend they take it or not? And you score that on a scale of one to seven. And I asked that question of every employee that's working somewhere. And that gives me an instant insight into the culture, right? So there's two examples. It's
0: interesting because I'm trying to draw insights out of it, like principles behind this first example. And it sounds like it's all about finding the white space, right? So it's like looking at the negative space, not what is there, but what isn't, or not what you decided, but what you didn't, uh, what you mm-hmm. chose not to do over what right. you chose to do, which I think is one of the most powerful fucking thing you can do. And especially when standing the fuck out or like trying to differentiate yourself uh, as a as a consultant. Um, do you have perhaps another question that may be more like closely related to what you do, or maybe someone that you advise in terms of looking for the white space.
1: Yeah, here's another one. Have you heard of Derek Sivers? I learned this from him. I love his writing, yeah. He would ask his clients, not, you know, a typical consulting engagement is, okay, what do you need to do better? What do you need to start? What's missing? Like what activity do you need to focus on? He would flip that around and say, what do you need to stop doing in order to free up the right time to them, we can ask the second question, what should you start doing in that space? But, and, and so it gets deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden, they start to see how he thinks. And it's like, oh, my God, everything I start needs to have an end point in mind. I mean, maybe not a marriage, right? But <laughs> everything else I start needs to have an end point in mind. Like, OK, I'm going to hire James here. And just my instinct tells me James is going to be a great employee for two and a half years. And then I'm going to have to replace him. Maybe it doesn't work out that way, but you just have, and I'm going to start this little group of people. We're going to meet every Friday afternoon over a beer, but let's let's just pick an endpoint right now. Let's just not start things. Then our lives get so so cluttered, right? I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too weird here, but those are examples of how you think differently.
0: No, 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 you're not getting weird at all. It's 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 very interesting because we're going deep into this. It reminds me of this moment in the office, The American Office. Uh, Michael Scott says, "Uh." We're all going to be here for the rest of, until the day we die. He's expecting all of his employees to stay with him until the day they die <laughs> working. Um, so that reminds me of that. But this is this I think I'm gonna ask you a very leading question, but wouldn't you agree that the art of asking questions is probably one of the core foundation of a healthy consulting practice. and
1: as you said, don't you think it's kind of it reveals who you are what you believe in? Absolutely. yeah, in fact, I'm always amazed because really good consultants, they hear this feedback early in the engagement. They say, I can't believe how quickly you saw us, how quickly you figured out what was going on. And it's like, it's not that hard. All you got to do is ask the right questions and listen. And the odd thing is that what the consultant mirrors back to the client is what the internal team has been telling them for a long time, but they've been getting ignored, right? Right. So you're just the outsider that says the same things, but they listen to you because they paid you a lot of money and because you know how to present the truth in a way that doesn't, that isn't a personal assault on them. They hear it without closing up because they don't get defensive on it because you're presenting it. And that's part of advising well too. But the insights are all the same things that other people are seeing. You're just putting them together and you're, you're pattern matching. You're seeing, oh, oh, this means that. And that combination of this means this. Now, let me turn that back to them in a way that isn't personal, but really helpful.
0: Okay, so that first question led to a lot of stuff. And I feel like this questioning, questioning clients is so important. I was trying to dig into one questionnaire that I intend to send. I'm just going to get it now because there there is
1: a question that I like and I want you to maybe tell me if it's shit. Or a similar word or whatever. Yeah, I love that's one thing. I don't have to be careful what I say on your podcast. I like this.
0: Yeah, the one that I really love to ask about their customers, right, so the customer's customer, is there about, you know, what happened the day that finally made them say, I need to solve that need or reach that goal, right, which goes back to triggers. Again, looking at the white space, and negative space, this is something they've never really looked at properly, which is like the actual triggers, what make people start thinking of potentially doing something instead of what is the last action before they bought from you, which is completely the triggers could happen five years before. Could have a series of triggers all the way. Anyway, this one I really like for that reason because usually that makes people think, and then they know the reason why I ask this question is because I want the answer and I want to use the answer so that we you know we can build a plan around it, right? So then they you know they start understanding that that question is just not innocent, right?
1: There's a there's a firm in Chicago called Avenue. Their website is avenue-inc.com and their focus is working with firms, their clients are facing a particular inflection point, they call it. And they're an expert at understanding what needs to be done at those inflection points. It could be like a huge drop in stock. It could be some scandal. It could be an acquisition of another firm or whatever. One of my favorite triggers when I I was working with a firm that focused on high-end dentistry, cosmetic dentistry. So it's not the stuff you have to go because you've got a a bad tooth it's good you want to fix your teeth right and we were trying to figure out how do we reach because all these cosmetic dentists were just normal dentists and they decided to focus their practice in cosmetic dentistry we discovered that they had to buy about a million and a half dollars worth of equipment that took a year and a half to make and install so we would connect with the manufacturer of that equipment and they're loaning money to the dentist And they have an interest in this dentist being successful. They would refer the dentist to my client and say, hey, you need to work with them because there's a specific way you attract clients to or patients to a a cosmetic dentistry. Anyway, that's a really interesting way to think of triggers.
0: Yeah, but that's what's on. So this is like connecting a job that has been hired, like you've hired uh, a product for a job already. And now you've made progress. Then you make you you move on to the new, to the next one. So that's a good example of a trigger. And you said like a year and a half, roughly.
1: Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: that's exactly that's you know that's a spot on example because it shows the the length of time sometimes that you, where you can really anticipate demand, which is where it becomes very powerful, right? You anticipate the demand, thinking going back in the triggers, and exactly as you said, then the, the person sending those high end equipment can become the trigger and say, hey, in a year and a half, once it's all there, like you need to get ready to get those clients in.
1: Here's an example, another one for my industry, my work. So I've noticed that my potential clients get most introspective about nine months before their lease expires. They're not making any long-term commitments to their business. Like they could stop at most any point. The only long-term commitment they make is signing a five- or a 10-year lease for an expensive office. That nine-month mark, they're faced with, okay, do I want to sign another five-year lease? Okay, if I do, then these are the things about my business I don't like. I need to fix them, right?
0: Good, because then you can think about, okay, how do I use that to my advantage? Do you then is there a public database of
1: you know leases
0: that are going to expire? Can you monitor that maybe on LinkedIn where they are like, I don't know, like is there any things that signals that you can look for yourself and think, okay, they might be way more likely to buy right now because they are in this place?
1: right. I just have a whole like a half dozen of them, and so I'll just explore them in an initial conversation, ask about their lease, ask about how big they are. Usually people's initial sort of the swell of referrals they get from starting a business. It's this artificial excitement because they have all these clients that have heard about them. That usually fades after about three and a half years. So I'll ask, like, how long have you been in business? If they're somewhere between 10 and 15 people, usually they've hit a wall because they don't have the processes they need. You know, all of these are are different for every industry, right? But if you're really focusing on something, you start to see these things and you start to weave them into your conversations.
0: Absolutely. I ask you about the signs of an unhealthy practice. What are the signs of a thought-after, you know, experts leading a firm or just on their own, someone who's
1: running a healthy practice? I don't know how to rank them, but it's, this one's got to be really near the top, that they have somehow figured out a way to concentrate the effort they spend on making money, which leaves them plenty of time, at least a half a day, ideally a full day a week to just put their feet up and think, write, innovate, explore, dream about completely other things. The mark of a really healthy consulting firm is one where you are not running around ragged all the time. I just, it's not even, it's not just even that without that, you can't think of all the things you need to, to be a better advisor, but it's that you can't, you just can't sustain that sort of pace, right? There's certain things based on each personality that wears. Like in your world, there's probably some things you you could just do many of them all at once, wrapped on top of each other. And there's other things you do that you don't enjoy. In my life, the things that wear me out, I love them, but I can't. I can only do so many of them. Are phone calls with clients, right? Like I can sit in email all day. That doesn't bother me. So in my world, I'm going to do phone calls with clients between nine and three Monday through Thursday, and that is it. It's never an exception. Well, every once in a while, maybe the mark of a healthy consultancy is one where your work, what you get paid for is inside a fence and that still leaves room for you to be a human and to keep thinking in in that free space.
0: What tends to happen a lot is, uh, We are so busy with client work, we can't work on ourselves. I hear that so many, like very often because it's tough. And yeah, we tend to forget that we should treat ourselves like a, another client. We should make time for ourselves. Like something, a practice that I've started recently is to send daily emails. I mean, the sending is the result of it, but writing daily emails is in a different story. And so the, you know, I'm having a lot of fun thinking through, okay, what am I going to send today? What is the very, very, very specific thing I'm going to send today? I do it in batches. To go back to your point about having time to think and dream, this is this is my time to think. You know, I think out loud.
1: And the more you do that, the more you realize, gosh, I'll never run out of ideas. It's like, and right. that's the fear at the beginning. Like if I If I say I'm going to write daily, I'm going to have to have a fresh thought every day. Then the more you do it, it's like, oh, my God, this is like the the ideas are just flowing, right? It's just it's weird how it is. It's just unexpected.
0: Uh, You get replies to the email you get new thought based on the email and then you realize actually every theme the way i picture it in my head is a matrix and so every theme that i touch on you can slice it and dice it in different ways as soon as i think i think the the biggest thing that i had to let go of is this 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 fear that you're repeating yourself but actually, it's the opposite. You should and must repeat yourself so many times, right? That changes again, game because then you can share yet another example to make the point. You can share yet another step-by-step, step, yet another perspective, yet another quote about it. You know, it just never ends.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, sometimes I'll be on a fa- call with a client and I'll say, oh, shoot, I wish you'd just been on this call with this last client, you know, then I wouldn't have had to say this again. And then I, then I have this, I, I don't worry about it so much anymore, but five, 10 years ago, I would think, oh man, is this, should I be repeating this? Cause you know, shouldn't I be personalizing every bit of advice? It's like, no, once you know the truth about something, it's malpractice not to tell people. And by definition, you're going to repeat yourself a lot, right? You got to make sure it's applicable to them. But yeah, that's a really, that's an interesting point.
0: So in your book, your most recent book, there is, like it's funny because you you nail the positioning of the book because there is a part of it where you say I've, I'm writing this book for you, if. Mm-hmm. and you write bullet points after bullet points, and I'm reading them like fuck the bastard like he knows he knows exactly exactly what I'm thinking. So I'm just gonna read a, f- a few because you have you definitely know uh, um, you're terrified of irrelevance, and so are always trying to reinvent yourself. Uh, to you, future proofing is like mowing the lawn in that it's never quite done for good. Another one, which i really connected with, you love money, not primarily for what it can buy, but because of the freedom it affords. I fucking love money because that <laughs> means I can spend so much time with my daughter. You know, right. I can spend an entire week and she's sick and I don't do any work. I can, you know, without worrying. And that's exactly it. So yeah, I wanted to compliment you on that. Going back to the question. So you said... A sign of a healthy practice, figuring out if they have time to think, to dream. Anything else?
1: Um, you have a sufficiently steady amount of opportunity that when something comes along that isn't a great fit for you, without hesitation, you refer that to somebody else. It could be a direct competitor of yours. Just this week, I, without him asking me, he's a, he's a competitor of mine. He just wrote a book. I just wrote a LinkedIn post telling people about it. You ought to buy it. It's good. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here. I wrote a review on Amazon. It's like the world is so big. Why, why are we getting so defensive about our amount of opportunity? So a mark of a healthy business is one where you really look like you, you're careful about a fit because you have tasted the difference between a great fit client and one that's not a great fit client, and you don't enjoy the process. And you hand them to somebody who's a better fit without any regret
0: that's something i learned from you from Loyola's book the business of expertise that's something i was like this is mad i think you're the f- the only one that i that i know that i follow who does that openly like this it's quite rare i think to to find this behavior so it's a sign of someone who just doesn't need to get bothered by yeah working with people who are not perfect fits and i just love that about you like this this it signals so much it's it's really uh, it's such a contrarian viewpoint, and obviously I love those. There's another contrarian viewpoint, and maybe I'm, I'm mixing, but I, I, I'm, no, I think it's from you as well, where you talk about trying to, so being paid to think, not to do, right? And mm-hmm. to avoid uh, long-term commitments, and like to try to like, it's okay not to do retainers, like am I paraphrasing wrong or?
1: No, that's right, yeah, that's right. You wanna think of yourself as the liberating force, You drop in, you liberate the force from the enemy, not necessarily the occupying force. The model of the big consulting firms is the occupying force. They wedge their way in and then in the back door, a horde of 80 consultants stay there and they never leave. It's like a virus. The longer they're there the less appreciated, the more they're annoying. A liberating force shoots the enemy, pulls you out of the rubble, and everybody's happy. An occupying force eats your crops and dates your daughters, right? They don't want that. Don't look for, I don't know if you have these over where you live, but we have, they're called timeshares. You get to use this place of vacation for two weeks a year, but it's, you never get out of it. You, you can die and they're still going to send you bills. It's like we don't want those kind of relationships. We want kind of relationships where you're in and out, you're appreciated, you're objective. The more embedded you are in a client, the less you can see things from the outside. You just start getting used to their weird ways of doing things and they become normal to you and then you're not that useful to them.
0: You have a gift about analogies. I know you do that on purpose or maybe just your brain is is good at it. But yeah, I I like the way you you create analogies around concept like the occupying force versus the liberating force. And it's so funny because in my first marketing agency that I failed at within a year and a half, uh, burnout and all of that, the main thing I was so worried about was... How am I gonna make them agree to a retainer, and then how am I gonna keep them on as for as long as I can, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the most selfish thing to do, because exactly to your point, the returns are diminishing every day, you know. And I saw that firsthand. At the end, they were questioning, you know, why am I even paying you? And then the relationship got sour. And so now, what I do is. Like a full day you work with me, for example, right? And then that's it. You have everything. You have the process. You can do everything yourself after. You have the confidence, the clarity. You can ask me questions after, but, you know, that's it. And so so liberating because you're like, you give the power back to the client, right? You you, you tell them, you don't need me anymore after this. My job is for you. Exactly as you said, I'm a liberating force. I'm going to give you the clarity, the processes, and then you can fly on your own.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'm not looking for an annuity here where I suck you dry over, you know, years and years and years. I I really love that. Now, the other way to work with this is to develop additional useful sources or projects or whatever that the same clients want to buy. So then you move back in and do this second thing for them. And then you come back out, right? That's much better than this steady relationship where they just get tired of you. So there is a reason to come back in. And I I actually think there's a reason for retainers every once in a while, but we think of them from a selfish standpoint, which is what you just said. It's very true. Most people don't admit that, but it really is a selfish thing. There's a legitimate reason for a retainer, and that would be that the client values your work so much that they want to reserve that capacity. Okay. Now, The key is that time is not a renewable resource. So if they don't use that capacity they've reserved, it doesn't roll forward. It's like, you know, you don't if you miss your reservation slot at a restaurant, you don't automatically get the same one next Monday. Right. And then the only reason you would do a retainer is because you know how much capacity to build that they're going to reserve. So I'm not completely down on retainers, but I I just feel like only do retainers when it's in the client's best interest. And sometimes it isn't.
0: I completely agree. I don't these retainers either, but it's definitely yeah to the best interest of the client, not for selfish uh, reasons. Right. So, okay, we've defined what's wrong with the signs of an unhealthy practice. We've started to talk about the sign of a healthy one. Now, I, I just want to challenge you a bit, think about you know people listening. They might be consultants themselves. They might be thinking of becoming one, and they want to know, how do I do it? How do I actually build a healthy practice You know that is profitable, sustainable? Let's say we've you've hired, you've been hired, right, by a small firm owner, you can pick the size that is the best fit in your head or, you know, whatever. And they want to meet more businesses, right? They want to get paid more, you know, all the typical stuff. Like, what are the principles we're going to apply with them? Like, what are the the typical things that we tend to do?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it starts with a positioning. So, a positioning is simply, it's almost like a learner's permit that says, okay, I'm not an amazing driver right now, but I have this license to practice and get a lot better. Or you can think of it as a hunting license, okay? So this hunting license gives me permission to hunt right here. So I'm going to learn everything about this piece of property and the animals that are here and what time of day and the impact of weather and all that stuff. So you can't just be a generalist advisor, right? Because there's just too much to learn. To be an expert, you've got to narrow that so you can go really deep. That's the first step. The second step is to listen to the questions that your clients are asking you to find out the most important information gaps there are. And this is going to be an uncomfortable process because you're not going to have the answers to those questions at the beginning. I remember this happened to me and I realized, oh my gosh, I keep getting these questions and my clients are expecting me to have a point of view and I don't have one yet. And I wrote them down. There were 55 questions. That's a lot, right? And I decided I'm going to knock these off one month at a time. I'm going to figure out what's a reasonable point of view that I can defend on this. And then I can use that to consult. So that would be the second step is to figure out the questions they have and, and formulate points of view on that.
0: So yeah. let me stop you here. Yeah. Usually, I would quiz you on the first step, right? I would tell you how do you do it, right? Uh, the positioning thing. Uh, but we actually talked about that five years ago. Um, so I would recommend uh, folks to actually go to the episode, search for the the episode with David Baker again. I don't remember exactly uh, the name, but it's around how to start a marketing agency or something along those lines. And we do talk about different uh, positioning. We do talk about all of this. So I'm not going to talk about that today. I prefer to, to dive into other stuff. So. The second one, you know, listening to the questions and then finding uh, the answers. I, I love this because I actually did this exact thing to build the methodology that I now use for everything, right, for the book, for, for my clients and stuff. And so I call them gaps. It's funny that you said that now. And uh, it was all the questions I did they have the answer to, all the struggles, not necessarily questions, questions, right? It's not necessarily people who ask me, Louis, how do I do this or why is that? It's more like, where are th- what are the, the points where they struggle?
1: What are the points where they don't right. understand? What are the points where, you know? They may not even have the questions, but you know how to formulate them into questions. Yeah, right. Exactly, right. And then filling the gaps, reading more books, listening
0: to the episodes again, thinking, you know, just thinking mm-hmm. through stuff. So is that what you mean?
1: Yes, exactly right. Yeah, yeah.
0: So how does one go about collecting those questions? You collected 55. How does one do this?
1: It comes in two different scenarios. One would be in phone calls with prospects where they are, you know, you're saying like, what, what, what are you, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change about your business, right? And then, oh, okay. So what have you tried and why has that not worked? Like, what's the missing piece of information? So, that, that first scenario is just lots of calls with prospects where you're just soaking up everything that they care about. And obviously there's this provisional fit because they're spending their time. It's really about time and not money. They're spending their time with you. And that's very, very valuable. So you've got to mind that. And then the other is in client engagements where it gets particularly embarrassing if you don't have the answers, but you just have to work through it. And that's where they, what are the things that they expect you to know? because they're looking at you as an expert you've got to surface those things and whatever they expect you to know that you don't or you feel like you're starting to make up bullshit (laughs) that's where you've got to. and that happens all the time right um it's because people come to you and they don't have the answers. So they don't necessarily recognize what the real answers are. So it's pretty easy to make up bullshit. But you see it yourself. And you start to say at the end of a call, it's like, oh shit, I twice there I made up bullshit. I need to really know what I'm talking about. And then you go start searching. And on that Friday you take off, that's where you spend half the day doing it. That's what I mean. So have you ever made to- up bullshit? And with a phone call never Have you ever been ma- never right but yeah I don't right. do phone calls I do zoom <laughs> meetings so
0: okay. that's not like to me um, <laughs> um, so what I was what, what, what did I want to ask you so yeah um yeah something that people struggle with a lot in that step is that they want to be seen as an expert and right. therefore when they're getting asked a question they don't know instead of saying you know what not sure about this one. This is very specific. You know, I'm, I need to do some research. i will come back to you next week. They fucking make up bullshit, right? Oh, and like thing. Yeah.
1: That you, what you just said is like that is so important. Like Because experts admit when they don't know something. That way, when they say something that they do know, they're given more authority because of that, right? But if you have the answer to everything, nobody knows which of your answers are real and which ones aren't.
0: I, you know, I know your biggest fear. It's not snakes. It's not spiders. It's looking at a firm's website and reading. There is no problems we can't solve. Yeah,
1: right. Isn't come it? to me. Come to me. Arms are wide. Whatever you need. Yeah.
0: Whatever you need, we'll do it. Custom build mm-hmm. solutions for every <laughs> use case.
1: <laughs> yeah. We listen very closely and we craft solutions that always work. They're proven. Like That's a sign <laughs> of bullshit right there
0: maybe as a little apartheid, why is it such a bad idea to say there is no problem we can't solve?
1: Because expertise is defined largely by irrelevance. So when you think about positioning for a minute, when you have a really broad positioning you're saying you're relevant to everything. And the process of narrowing your positioning is not so much what you're more relevant to, it's what you're saying, I'm not gonna be relevant to these all these other things, right? So that carries over into your conversations where you say, listen, in our engagement, there are some things I absolutely know. There's other things that I'm pretty sure about and there's other things I'm gonna need to research and I'm gonna identify these. I might give you my preference along the way, but I'll flag it as saying, I'm not sure about this, I need to look into it, right?
0: We've touched on step one, step two, positioning, gathering the gaps. And then I'm curious about your method. Do you have new knowledge gaps that you try to fill right now or do you feel you've covered everything?
1: No, I still have them, right? But now what I'm trying to do is categorize that knowledge and make it mathematical.
0: Okay, so tell me more about that. How do you, maybe you can pick a knowledge gap you have right now or that you've solved recently.
1: So half of my work is mergers and acquisition, and Jonathan runs that side, and then I run the advisory side. And we've done evaluation of the firm. We have this gut instinct about how sellable it is, but we want a mathematical measurement that says your sellability index is this. Like just just before this, I got in a call with someone, his sellability index was 98 out of 100, the highest we've ever seen. There's still things for him to work on, right? But it's very sellable as it is. Or your, your firm's health. We just developed a, a health index where we take all these 900 firms and we start measuring it. And we come up with the six things that are the most important. We put it into mathematical formula. Jonathan does the analysis. He sends it to me. He doesn't show me the score. He says. This is for the last 30 times. All right, tell me what you think this score is. This morning he sent me one. I said, Oh, this one's tough. There's some, there's evidence running in both ways, it's disparate. And I said, I'd say about a 55 out of 100. And he said, Very good. It was 52. So, we're, so we keep testing this formula and that's where this is sort of applying the advanced stuff where you take this body of knowledge because you've had similar experiences with your clients and you start to see those patterns and you start to build them into models that you can use. Models do two things for you. They help you get to the core answer for a client more quickly and more accurately it's a beautiful process. I know I'm talking like a raving scientist here, but I just get really excited about, about solving solutions without just throwing smart people at it and trying to use their intuition and figure it out. I want data, baby. I want like, I want, I want, I want patterns. Like I want to be able to defend it. (laughs) I hate looking stupid. One
0: fear that people would have at this stage when it comes to filling those knowledge gaps, I used to have it, so that's why I'm saying it, is that the fear of leaning on other people's knowledge, expertise, like through books, podcasts, or whatever, because you kind of want to be seen as an expert. And therefore, an expert doesn't listen to other people's expertise. Like they do their own stuff, you know, they come up, they invent stuff, right? They innovate all the time. That's what my dad told me when I was, when I told him I was writing a book. He said, but How come are you writing a book and reading other people's book to research for it? You know, like that's just, you know, why don't you just come up with everything yourself? That just doesn't work like this. You know, anyway, what do you say?
1: So if I'm writing a new book and there's a specific topic, then I'll figure out, okay, what are the, what are the respected books on this subject? I buy them. There's usually three or four. I do not read them. I finish my book completely. Then I scan those, not to look for different perspectives, but to look for, Holes or gaps. It's like, oh, I can't write this book without addressing this. Look at every one of them addresses this. I need to, okay, I need, so it's more about categories that I'm looking at. But I also, and then I'm going to read them, like after I've written my book, because I don't want to be an idiot. Like if somebody says, well, how come you don't think the same thing that David Meister thinks about? It's like, who's David Meister? Like I better know who that is and what he thinks, right? So I don't want to be stupid. People don't think you're much of an expert unless you know at least what the the landscape shows, right? But I also feel like, you know, the the deeper your expertise, the more broad your interests need to be. They don't necessarily need to be in the field where you're focusing, but you need to make sure that you're not diving so deep you become this weirdo that doesn't even understand how your perspectives fit into the real world, right? So that's why you really need to, you just need to come up for air every once in a while and realize there's real people around you. You're not just living on a farm in the woods in Tennessee like I am. Yeah, exactly. I was about
0: (laughs) to say, that sounds like you. Um, (laughs) You sound like Gandalf at this stage. So I didn't mean books necessarily that talk about the same topic. What I was talking about is really like tangential stuff like things that have nothing to do or that seemingly that i'll not have anything to do with writing for example i I read a very good book on uh conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists and why do people believe them and stuff like that because that connects with one topic so i agree with you um and it's you have a nice diagram on on your uh, last book and the book before where you know the t-shaped thing you know that broad thing and then very deep expertise and that's a very nice way to see it because then you can connect shit that others don't connect oh yeah it's just a beautiful thing.
1: I love reading outside of my industry. I mean, I learned so much. I, I remember I got trapped in this series, a six part series about how they train car salesmen. And it's like, oh man, I've experienced this. I walk across the threshold and I'm like fresh meat and somebody, I know that they've said, all right, I'm next. I'm getting that guy. And he comes over and talks to me. And I want to know, how do they? How do they garner this power in that selling relationship? Like, and I may be able to apply some of that stuff to what I do. So I love exploring. I, I, yeah, I do want to. I have to know my field, but oh my god, I'm so curious. I want to know other fields too. Now I don't want to know them so deeply that I'm an expert in there, but I want to make sure that all of my stuff is relevant. It borrows from other industries and so on. It's a fun world. Apart from this
0: example of the car salesman, any other? I don't know. A book or maybe a podcast you've listened to that is completely outside of your field that you got a really lot like a lot of ideas from or a lot of knowledge from?
1: Oh, absolutely! In fact, there is one source nowadays that I think gives me it's sort of it's like a gathering place of all kinds of disparate stuff, and that's Substack. Um, you go uh-huh. to Substack and. I think I subscribe to about 20, 22 of those things. Some of them are free where I only get parts of it and others I dive in deep. And it's comedy, it's politics, it's tech, it's investment, it's music. And I found that's like the best place I found. These are all independent experts who have kind of turned their back on mass media, and they are largely uncancelable at this point. So they're writing what they really believe. It doesn't mean it's right, but it is. it resonates with who they are. And so Substack is a place I go to now to read a lot of that stuff. I really appreciate it. And like on the political side, I'm usually going to read somebody who's an iconoclast or somebody who's a heterodox sort of in the middle. They're homeless. They don't like the right or the left, whoever that is in your country. But they're sort of borrowing from all parts and saying, really, the truth isn't this or this. The truth is little pieces of things here and there. That's where Substack comes in play for me.
0: Nice. That's a very nice tip. And yeah, it's a very nice tip to stand the fuck out and to to stand out in general, to really learn from other uh, perspectives that are completely beyond your industry. I have a quick example. I interviewed Ken Davenport a few years ago, who's a Broadway producer. He produced very famous Broadway shows. That was very interesting to me. I never really talked to someone like that before. But he was talking about the fact that he had learned, he had heard the story of an airline who mistakenly priced their tickets very, very low uh, by mistake, right? So like instead of being, I think it was American Airlines, instead of being 1499 it was like 1499 right? Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that for for days and they lost a lot of money because they had to actually give the ticket for that price. So what he did, he just took the idea and really do it for Broadway. Instead of doing like giving tickets for free on the streets, like this is the number one promotion method still today for Broadway to tourists and stuff. For the new show, he actually, when he was putting the price online to the... Whatever website was gathering all of those Broadway shows and tickets, he did it on purpose. He actually, uh, instead of being 149, he did that at 14.9. And he didn't say it to anyone. And then, yeah, industry people picked it up and then it went kind of viral. But those tickets would have gone for free, right? Okay, we went through a step one positioning. Then we, we went into a lot of stuff around listening to knowledge gaps and filling them out. What's next?
1: Next is that the third thing was what we talked about in terms of turning it into models. So trying to make it as mathematical as possible, right? So if you go to your surgeon and you're lying down on the gurney and they're ready to take you in and before they put you under, you say, hey, doctor, and you just ask a question, can you walk me through what's the process you use for this bypass thing you're doing? What you don't want to hear is, oh, we just go in there we look around, you know, we kind of think about the options we have. No, you want it without any hesitation to say, yeah, these are the 17 steps we use, da-da-da-da-da. As an advisor, you ought to have that same process. And that's kind of what the newer book is about, is really that experts don't just have specific knowledge, they deliver it in a way that's unique as well. And what's interesting about that to, to me is that your clients... And this would be true for all of your listeners. Your clients notice deficiencies in the process long before they notice deficiencies in the quality of the advice itself. They're not necessarily in a place to evaluate whether your point of view is accurate or not. They kind of trust you, but they don't really know if you're right. But they do know, they get these vibes about the process you're using. Is it methodical? Is it sloppy? are you making it up each time? Is it obvious that you kind of don't know this industry? Like, then you have a positioning problem. So anyway, it's it's about turning it into a model so that you're delivering the advice. That would be this step. You're delivering the advice under a model that's unique to you as well that other firms don't have.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's critical, right? To, to do this in a semi kind of automated way where, where you just do the same thing. And what's I love about the medical analogy is that it really works for a lot of things about running a healthy consulting practice, right? Like, asking yourself, would a surgeon do this is usually a good test Mm -hmm. about whether or not you are, yeah, you're doing something right. Like, would a surgeon, exactly as you say, just figure shit out as they go, trying to, like, fix a bypass. Would a surgeon chase people over the phone saying, hey, did you see my invoice? Would a surgeon, you know, like, you start thinking, like, if you behave like a surgeon who's well sought after... They would do. They, there's a lot of things they wouldn't do.
1: My favorite one is the surgeon who's like a cancer expert, right? And he has a staff meeting on Monday morning, and he says, "All right, staff, got a new got a new thing here. I know we always do cancer, but I have always wanted to work on a kidney. So next time somebody comes to the office that needs help with a kidney, don't refer them to the kidney special. Let's do it. We need time to explore, right?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and someone knock on the door and it's like, listen, I have like this
0: massive pain, you know, in my back and, you know, something needs to be done. It's like, well, yeah, come on in. We just take your money. It's all good, you know, it doesn't matter yeah, if you're right. a specialist or not. <laughs> yeah, it's mad when you think about it for that field. But, you know, for us, when I say us, the, the consultant agencies and stuff, all of a sudden it's a different thing, you know.
1: Yeah, and if you think, of, if you rank the relative importance, You think about, okay, the deepest experts make the most money. They worry the least about being customer oriented. There's usually the most regulation around it because if they mess it up, people can die. And you go down, you know, you got surgeons at the top and then you come down to engineers and architects and then, I don't know, accountants maybe next. Lawyers would be somewhere up there. And then we consultants are sort of at the bottom. And the reason the government leaves us alone is they figure, eh, don't worry about, like, they're, they're never going to help, they're never really going to hurt anybody all that much either, never going to help anybody. It's like, we don't need regulations for them, we don't, they don't need to go through a certification process, just don't worry about them. That's, that's what people think of us, right? And that's, we need to not earn that reputation, we need to think of ourselves as doctors. How does one build a
0: model? Because I suspect, obviously, let's say you're you an in-house marketer and decide to go on your own doing financing or consulting, like you can't just build a model straight away, right? So what do you advise on this?
1: You can't make it up at the beginning. It really has to emerge from just doing this over and over and over again. I think a firm that's in the consulting space that that really knows what they're doing They ought to find enough information to build their own IP every four to five years. So if you've been in business 20 years, you ought to have four pieces of IP. So you ought to have a very specific way of approaching a problem. It's not just the knowledge you have, it's how you apply it. So like in one of the programs that I'm selling my clients, there are six modules. So I know when they start, when they end, I know how to bump a client to the next one there's fences around it. I'm not overservicing things. I know exactly how it flows. I can when I'm reading something over here that has nothing to do with my field, I might say oh, that's interesting. I could plug that into number four out of the six or whatever. But, you know, it was probably 15 years before I started to see how I could sort of group all that together. Right. So that that's kind of how it happens. Just you're listening. You've got antennas up and one day you see, oh, this could be a little bit different. And then six weeks later, you see something else. You just have to be patient with it and just be listening for the right things.
0: And obviously, it's a tough situation to be in when you get started, because you can't. Therefore, therefore you can't be seen as a expert just yet so you kind of need to wing it for a while right not not lying but just being willing maybe to take some hits in terms of pricing or whatever to just build your experience
1: yeah exactly you need to deliver value it's you never want to be not delivering value, but you're just not delivering nearly as much value. You're looking for people who are a little bit more desperate. They're not willing to pay as much money. They need stuff quicker. They're, you can kind of experiment on them. It's, it's like those, using the medical analogy, it's like those training schools. Like I went, I had no money in college, and there was this place that trained dentists, and you could go in and get your teeth worked on for free but it kind of hurt like hell because they didn't know what they were doing, but you didn't have to cost. That's sort of what it's, what the beginning is like, right? But you just go through that. That's just what it is. Or, or you learn, you ally yourself with somebody and you just soak up the way they do it. That's also a great way to do it. And then you start moving off on your own, you separate from them. And yeah, it's just, you have to be patient with yourself, but you can't Your expectation can't be to be a perfect advisor. Your expectation is to be the very best advisor you can be with the knowledge you have, coupled with a thirsty curiosity that never stops, right? And that's enough because you can be so engaged with somebody that you can still be delivering all kinds of value, not the kind of value you would deliver five years from now, but it's still value, right? It's still value. There's something
0: I wanted to touch on as well that you mentioned in your latest book, which is part of the... I think there's six principles you talk about uh you talk about positioning uh, having a lead gen plan financial performance uh, broad context and deep expertise then your role in the firm like making sure you have the right one The last one is mental health Mm -hmm. why is it such an important thing
1: i think it's way more important for a consultant than it is for lots of other industries because you're solving things that matter a lot to people right and so the cost of getting it wrong is pretty severe, right? That's part of it. The other is that you are putting yourself in a place where you care a lot about solving this. And that takes something from you, right? Another reason is because nobody comes to a consultant. I mean, it's not fun to work with a consultant. It's almost an admission of failure. So people don't come to you willingly. They only come to you because they've tried everything they can think of and nothing's working. So they have eaten the meat and the dessert and all that's left is the broccoli and they they don't want to eat it. And you know that the solution is the broccoli and you you force feed them the broccoli, right? It's, it takes something out of you to be a consultant, to be a good one anyway. And so that wears on your mental health. And there's also in this process, which I've loved our conversation because we're talking about constantly learning, right? And so you're, there's this imposter syndrome that hits your head where you say, wait a second, they're just paying me a lot of money. They're looking to me for the answers. And I feel this pressure, like, do I really know what I'm talking about? And this imposter syndrome sort of just plagues you. And mental health has been one of my biggest struggles. I wrote a little bit about it in the book, but I feel like I'm sort of a high functioning, broken person. So both of those things can happen together, right? Where my own problems, my lack of confidence, my whatever it is, depression, it may hit me on a certain day, but I still have to perform for a client. And that's you, you just have to be honest about it, right? If you're, not, if you're not struggling with some mental health at some point, you're probably not being honest with yourself. So it's good to just build those shields around your business so that you can be there. If you're really providing value for your clients, you have an obligation to take care of yourself. It's a little bit like that. You hear people at the beginning of every flight, put your own flight mask on first and then help a kid. Like That sounds selfish, but that's exactly how it needs to work. You need to put your own mental health face mask on first, and then you help a kid, help a client.
0: So I'm, I'm going to read a quick quote there on, on this, and then I want to ask you a bit more about the mental health. But uh, it's uh, from a guy called Alex Hormozy. You might have heard uh, him. He's been, copywriter has been blowing up quite a lot recently. Uh, he says, uh, you don't become confident by shouting affirmations in the mirror, but by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. Mm. And the way I interpret these quotes is that uh, the way I solved my confidence issue, I mean, okay, I haven't solved it, but the way I can manage it, because it's always mm. coming back, right, you manage it, um, is to have a stack of nice things people say, results that I've delivered, right. and when I feel down, I just read them back. And mm-hmm. then, oh, yeah, fuck, I completely forgot about that client, or completely forgot about that episode, you know?
1: I do the so, same. Yeah? I have a whole folder. It's called praise and every once in a while I go read it. There's like 300 emails from all these years, yeah. What is it you do? Eat well, sleep enough, be active, and then those are probably true for everybody, but for me, I've got to be outside in nature. So we live on a a farm on a hill, and I spend a lot of time out in the woods. Um, I think uh, just getting rid of people who are parasitic in your life probably... Really controlling your use of of social media one of my one of my favorite jokes is um, I forget exactly what it says, but it's like a picture of this guy late at night on a computer and his wife is asking him to come to bed and he says, "Wait, I can't come yet there's somebody on the internet that's wrong It's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so those are those are the things for me right is um and protecting putting putting a fence around what I do so that it doesn't interfere with my personal life. That's how I manage it. And and even managing it well, I still have these ups and downs where I'll just say to my wife in the morning, Oh, it's like I got five calls today. Like, can you pray for me today? Like, I don't know. I'm really gonna need some help to get through it, you know? And there's one person on my side who is who is who's thinking about me. It's like there's something, the power of that, of another person that cares a lot about you, right, in your life. Could be a brother, could be a spouse, whatever it is, could be a coworker. I don't know. That's how I manage it.
0: Yeah, thanks for being so open about it. Um, I, I suffer from anxiety. I've been suffering for, for, for like years and years and years. And, and I realized that it was actually ruling my life for a long time. Like I was actually taking decisions and doing things because of my anxiety. Uh, like, it, you know, the fear, you know. And so it's mm-hmm. it's just not a sustainable way to live because, to your point, brain becomes tired and whatever. So I've taken steps to actually solve it through exercise and, and good sleep and good food but it wasn't enough for me uh mm-hmm. so i actually did um I actually taking medication for it right not something like no addictive medication but stuff to like regulate stuff a bit uh for, for a while and fuck it's such a big difference now and you know i feel like i am you know i'm in control of stuff more and whatever so i'm glad you mentioned mental health in your book because i believe that it's also something that we need to talk about now and because it's okay you know like as you said if you don't if you don't have any mental health you know problems you're probably lying to yourself if you ever yeah. had you know never had any moving on to this probably closing off the interview slightly uh, to the last questions I tend you're to ask you're
1: saving a tough one are you going to nail me to some cross here with this last question well
0: i tried my best to try to fucking you know nail you and challenge you and coming up with a question on the spot but you you know you seem to be able to I answer. made enough shit up yeah yeah you've made enough bullshit so i have asked you the same question the last time and to be frank i didn't look at what you uh, look back at what you said so let's just you know forget it happened uh, what do you think marketers people interested in marketing consultants and all of that should learn today that will help them in the next 5 10 50 years
1: mm. i well this one is going to sound selfish but i have no i don't make any money from this but i really think you ought to follow my podcast partner blair Enns, um at winwithoutpitching.com that his his understanding of selling and pricing just blows me away. I just have learned so much from it. That would be one. The other is there's this thing called Glimpse that's published monthly, and it's real cheap. It's like 5 or 10 bucks a month or something that talks about consumer trends and how things are changing. I like that one a lot. It's called Glimpse. And then one I already mentioned, and that's to sort of just scan all the subscriptions that are available at Substack.com. And just pick three or four that really interest you based on where you are in life. What's kind of missing from all this is actually marketing, you know, because I don't, I don't know, like obviously AI is a big thing, right? I think, I think it's, I don't think it's nearly as big a thing as people act like it is, right? I, I think it's better to look at the big picture and not worry too much about all these little things that get everybody excited every once in a while. So that's probably what I do. Yeah. Read every book I write. That might be a selfish example.
0: How many books have you published? Five?
1: Six now, but only three of them are any good, but yeah, six. (laughs) 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 Yeah,
0: yeah, but that that goes back to the point of before, like, you you, you can't write a sixth book that is good without, you know, publishing some shit before, right? Like, it just... Yeah.
1: I wrote a book on management called Managing Right for the First Time. There's a lot of really interesting concepts in there, but it should have been a long article, not a book. Yeah, don't buy (laughs) that one. (laughs) Don't <laughs> shit.
0: Okay, man. Um so thank you so much. I think I think it's been a very, very interesting uh, interview for myself. Let's well,
1: not wait five years to do it again, man.
0: Well you have to pay me next time. You know? <laughs> okay. Three times is too much.
1: You're a great interviewer. I love these discussions. It's really fun. Because I you know, you didn't tell me what you're gonna ask in advance, so I'm here like, oh I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like You know A-car. why? Why?
0: Because I don't know what I'm gonna ask you.
1: Oh, <laughs> Oh, I have some things,
0: right? I know roughly where I want to start, but to be completely honest, and then I have the question at the end, but in the middle, like it just it flows. I take notes, I dig deeper. That's how I, I like to do it. And it feels I like love a, it.
1: I love it. Rather than having a canned list of questions where I oh, so You hate it. I yeah, can't yeah, yeah. take it.
0: Because then you don't listen to the person. You just wait until they finish to ask you another question and then you would say, Okay, I have another question for you. Then you know, and you just like you just feel deconstructed. Yeah,
1: it's it's like eighteen advertisements stacked on top of each other. It's you don't get inside somebody's hub. So you you've yeah. done a really good job of pulling stuff. I appreciate the way you interview people. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, it's a shame that your podcast with Blair uh, you would never interview guests because I would love to come in.
1: Oh, you would absolutely. You would be our very first guest if we had guests. Pr- I promise. That's that. just
0: that's just a, that's just a horrible thing to say because you'll never have guests. And so you talk about a fucking hypothetical scenario that is not going to happen. Well, every
1: time we think about having guests, I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, Louis is going to want to be on here. Let's not do that. I'm kidding. (laughs) You (laughs) bastard. Okay. Uh, Where can people connect with you, learn more from you? Uh, So my consulting practice, I wouldn't be a good fit for most of you. But if they just kind of want to see how I do things, it would be davidcbaker.com. And if you want to know about the most recent book, go to tradecraft.is.is. Thank you, sir. All
0: right. Well, David, thank you so much once again for today. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much